My name is Marty, and uh, I'm your new host because I fired Matt. Um, I have kept all of his equipment. Anyway, no. Um, so I can't. Uh, I can't. Speak. Marty's getting too comfortable, Matt. What are you gonna do? Welcome to the Mental Gains Podcast. I'm your host, Verna Mullins. And I'm host, Matt Russell. In this episode, we are interviewing Marty. Marty has Level 1 ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder. Level 1 is the mildest form of autism. For reference, Level 1 ASD is the new diagnosis for what most people are referring to when they use the terms high-functioning autism or Asperger's Syndrome. Autism did not show up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders until 1980. So those born before that time were never diagnosed. And even some of the folks born in, raised in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s slipped under the radar and weren't diagnosed. So now there's an increasing number of adults getting formally diagnosed later in life. Marty shares this experience with us. Today, we are talking to my friend, Marty. Marty, welcome. Hello. Hi, Marty. Hi. What are we talking about here? You know what? I thought maybe um, since our last few episodes were pretty intense as far as content, that maybe we would just have kind of a, a, a laid back conversation mm-hmm. about, you know, what it's kind of like to live um, with certain issues just on the daily. Yeah, I have a what kind of, of what issues. kind of issues do you have, Marty? <laughs> you're you're in good company here. Well, you you would you would start to ask uh, before we got started here uh, how I would label myself, and uh, I guess I mean I like I, I have a few. I would say I'm neurodivergent. I consider myself on the autism spectrum. I I I, I, I struggle with um, uh, hyperfixating on things, so I don't. I make a concerted effort not to. Mm. So I'm going to say that as in I haven't delved into like exactly all of this, but basically I am um, what would be considered Asperger's, which has been using that term has been largely debunked. But I have uh, I'm I'm on the autism spectrum with uh, lower lower support needs. You know, I I, I'm one of the 15 percent that is on the spectrum that's employed, but I also have depression and anxiety. I think a lot of the anxiety comes from being on the spectrum and overthinking everything. Mm-hmm. And so when was it in your life? Or were you an adult before mm-hmm. before you were diagnosed or, or realized you were on the spectrum? Uh, yes, well into adulthood. <clears throat> I would say I was probably mid-20s. Uh, a friend of mine, we were over at his house and uh, just hanging out as you do in your 20s. Something about his little brother came up and... Um, like, I don't know. I don't know what it was exactly, but he was like, oh yeah, my brother has Asperger's. And I was like, I go, I've never heard of that. I go, what, what is that? And he started to describe to me of his little brother. He started to describe <laughs> you. <basically>. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I was like, oh really? That's a thing. And like a lot of the things he like, um, you know, I, I, I hadn't, well, looking back, they were meltdowns mm-hmm. growing up, mm-hmm. but as a child, it was, oh, Marty had a temper. Mm-hmm. And so like, oh, you know, that's just how Marty is. Marty has a temper mm-hmm. and he gets angry, but that's not what they were. So that that was the first inkling 
that there was something going on. It wasn't until a, a, another good 10 years later. You know, like this was, like I said, mid-late 20s. You know, now I'm into my 30s. Mm-hmm. 45 now for the listeners to understand the context. When uh, social media became more prevalent. And there was people were more outspoken about things and talking about their experiences that I related to. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is where I am. And I want to say very late 30s, several years ago, I said to my daughter, I was like, you know, I think I might be autistic. And my daughter goes, yeah, dad. You are <laughs> like it was just like everybody that. else knows. Yeah, until, it was until just the like, person figures it out, right? Yeah, I was like, yeah, you are. So it, was that relieving to to? It was relieving to know that it wasn't like I was just broken mm. necessarily, but like this makes like oh oh there is a reason for this, mm-hmm. and then I guess I guess so that was maybe. Mm, 10-ish years ago, maybe not quite. That's when I really started like deconstructing my life and all of those things that I've done. And and that's where I was like, oh, Marty didn't have a temper. Mm-hmm. Marty was having meltdowns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, born in 1978, my youth was mostly through the 80s. And I, I grew up in the country in kind of a, a Christian um, area, in a rural area. And they, mental health wasn't a thing in the 80s. And it never even occurred to my parents to go get me diagnosed mm-hmm. because, well, that's just how he is. My, <clears throat> I've always said my parents were accidentally great parents. <laughs> they were very supportive parents, almost to a fault. Mm. Sure, I had a temper. I would get angry. I would break things. That's okay. Mm-hmm. We still love him. That's just how he is. You know, and that's, that's great. That's very supportive. I wasn't put down for any of that, but I could have used a little bit more well, support what, there. What kind of scenarios were you in mm. that you would have these these temper tantrums? Were they in context where you had to, to socialize with other people? Um, I think a lot of it stemmed from from frustration. There's one story that like that that people like that people um, my siblings would bring up. I was probably, say, 10-ish, 11, 12, and um, starting to care about how I looked and everything. And I don't remember what it was, but I was it was in the morning, getting ready for school, and I was trying to do my hair, and my hair wasn't working out right, and I was getting frustrated, and I kicked, okay, so like, uh, kicked the, the, the door of the vanity, and like I kicked it straight through and broke it, and uh, like that was that was one thing that that really sticks with me. And you still haven't lived that down with no, your siblings. Right. No, and, there was, and you still care very much about your hair. I do, I do, I do very, very much. So. For the listeners, it looks fantastic right now. <laughs> it's it's all like spiked up with some gel in it, and he's it's got... not gel. No, it's not gel. Oh, okay. No, you don't use oh, gel okay. because gel makes it crispy. Okay. No, this got... is a forming compound. Let, let's okay. let's not promote misinformation on this podcast. <laughs> Anyways, whatever uh, forming compound that you have in your hair, it looks great. Thank you. Um, but I remember it was uh, uh, maybe about ten years ago. Uh, at a family dinner, my brother brought it up, and I was. I said, "I go, I go, I go. Yes, I, I, I go. Please do not talk about that. That is, 
something that's very hard for me. I, I can't think verbatim exactly what I said, but I came right out and said, hmm. please, let's not talk about that. That's hard for me. Yeah. And he did not listen to that and mm. kept going and was kind of trying to make jokes about it. And I, I, I ended up losing it and raising my voice and yelling and... Yeah. So that was vanity tantrum part two, kind of. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Did, and, oh, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, well, that was, that was like early, very early in, in my deconstruction and my mental health. And I had also, well, because of the meltdowns I would have, I had to go to anger management in my early 20s. And so I was trying to use those tools and express to him during this interaction positively you know that this is something that is hard for me i'd rather not talk about it and he wasn't listening and the tools that i had learned ran out and i went back to another meltdown i uh which it's there's lots of experiences like that throughout my life i am very embarrassed when i lose it very embarrassed when i have meltdowns and i get angry and i yell And I know, you know, every time it happens, I know it's going to happen again. I wish it was the last time. I happen to know that it was just six months ago at work. I had a meltdown with a coworker when we had a disagreement. Mm -hmm. I got written up for it, of course. But these are these part of my life, and I try to use the tools that I have to not have more incidents, but. And I know that for the people around me, they get scary. I get very angry, mm. very yeah. scary. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up work um, because I hadn't talked to you in a couple of weeks and, you know, I had was texting you mm-hmm. like, hey, what's going on? And you were kind of MIA. And then when we finally connected, um, you kind of to- told me what was going on the last few weeks. Yeah. You want to talk about what's been going on over the last <laughs> couple of weeks? Um, it's... A lot of everything, just a little bit of everything. Work has been frustrating. We're short-staffed, not just with employees, but with like management. And our lead management is lead something to be desired. So that's been frustrating. And then financially, of course, you know, bills have been hard to 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 make ends meet. Uh, going to the grocery store, I remember filling up a cart like not 10 years ago. It'd be a hundred bucks and I barely filled up a cart and it was $250 mm-hmm. and it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, and, um, you know, I've been single for a few years now. I've been trying to date, get on the dating sites and I don't get matches. And if I do get matches, the conversations are hard. I don't really connect and it, I, I can't go out and approach women because that's a whole nother issue. We could probably have a whole episode on that. And and do you hyper fixate on situations like work and relationships? I know you said you do your best to avoid hyper fixating, but oh, do you oh, ever oh, get oh, lost? In oh, a absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, here's a thought I had relatively recently, which I thought was really interesting. I was having, I was, I was creating a scenario in my head and I was rehearsing this conversation Mm -hmm. of an interaction that would probably never happen. Mm -hmm. And then I said, then I thought to myself, have I had more real life conversations or fake conversations? Mm. 
They often in times happen life. in the shower too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's I, a, that's a really interesting thought. Today, you guys invited me to come talk to you. I woke up at seven o'clock. Uh, uh, for the listeners, we're recording about one or two o'clock, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, came up with so many scenarios. I have no idea what we were going to talk about on this podcast. And and so I was like, oh, if they bring this up, I want to say this. And if they bring this up, I'm going to say this. And, da, 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 da. and so, yeah, I spent hours. So, re- so in your head, you were anticipating things that we would ask that you wanted to say. What were some of those things? Like, oh, what Lord. do you want to talk about? I don't know. No, 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 no. <laughs> Please don't. I, I told you in the very beginning. You did. You absolutely did. That I, I, I'm a good, I, I have no problem talking. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of problem making decisions. Mm-hmm. I, if I was the one in charge of this, I would not be talking the way I am. Well, well. well well, Verna knows she invited me to come speak at uh, at the Connection Center, mm-hmm. and everybody said I did a great job. You did do a great job, and that and I, people wanted you to come back. I do appreciate all of that, but being the speaker, being the one in charge, being the one that has to decide the things to say, was so draining, mm. so emotionally taxing. Mm-hmm. And I like every time afterwards, I was like. I hope Vernon doesn't ask me to do this again. And then, and, she, and then she did right away. And then probably. she did. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it again because I'm, I'm helping people. I'd like to think I'm helping people. And then uh, I remember uh, after the last time, uh, my daughter asked me, she goes, she goes, are you going to go talk at the Connection Center again? Has Vernon asked you to talk again? I go, I go, she hasn't brought it up and I'm kind of okay with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, You've said, you know, before we started that I'm well-spoken and I'm intelligent. That's all fine and dandy. But, but I don't know. I, I sometimes I think if it, I wonder if it's a mask, the way I talk or, or if this is just who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So uh, you have, do you have like a sense of otherness? Like you're different than other people. Have you felt like that your whole life? Oh, absolutely. And so the masking is, is you like copying or putting on a facade to fit in with other people. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I like to say this at work. This was uh, quite a while ago. I don't know what it was. So, so I, I where I work is, um, is in uh, downtown Toledo. And so we have a, a multicultural uh, um, employee base. And I don't know what it was I said, but I said something that might be considered more inner city vernacular. And uh, my coworker <laughs> said, um, Oh, we're starting to rub off on you, aren't we? And I was like, I go, I go, no, you know this. I'm autistic. I don't have a personality of my own. I'm copying you to fit in. Mm. And he was, and he laughed at it, but I was being serious. Yeah. This is what I've done my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I always question if I'm being myself or not. And I usually think if, if I'm being weird and I'm being inappropriate or not inappropriate, but just just a little odd, I'm like that's my like oh yeah I'm being myself, yeah <laughs> if if I'm not f- quite fitting in, that's probably me. So can you go home after a a day at work that has had some conflicts or or maybe just a, r- a regular day? Can you go home and what's the unmasking process like? Like what's it like getting back to to regular Marty if you don't even really know what regular Marty is? I don't know. That's a, good, that's a fantastic question. Is it's there a, a sense of relief when you're finally alone after being around people all day? Um, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I suppose. 
usually I will go home and I will have a I will have a beer and I'll sit outside, smoke a cigarette, and kind of doom scroll on TikTok. Um, maybe play a video game or or watch a YouTube of somebody playing a video game. It's it's but I don't I I don't know if that's actually good because it's I'm just disassociating is pretty much what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so like I don't know like I it usually takes me about a day, mm. a full day of just disassociating, just existing, not being productive. And then the next day, then I'm kind of myself, I guess. But I I, I still don't know what that means. I'm going to change gears for a second. Marty, you mentioned that you are dating. You are on the dating apps. You talked about you were in a long-term relationship for two Mm -hmm. years. You guys moved in together. Can you talk about the challenges of being in a relationship while being neurodivergent? Sure. Well, you talk about the dating apps. So I'll start there, which was even finding relationships have always been difficult for me. I don't put myself out there uh i've been accused by 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 guy friends of mine they're like marty you don't try you don't flirt you don't do these sort of things you know so they don't even know you're interested and uh i was like i i'm treating them like people right (laughs) like like that's what i do and you know like you know in your 20s and younger you know like you try to I guess, flirt, hit on, in, initiate conversations. And they all kind of fell flat. And then as, as time went on, I realized that even trying to start conversations with random, random women, usually at a bar, you know, well, they, they think you're after something. Of course you are. Of course that's what they think. And it made them uncomfortable. And I noticed it made them uncomfortable. And I, in internalize that so literally and i put that right into you know like you know my the autism i have developed a very real fear of it's almost a petrifying fear of making somebody uncomfortable the thought of approaching a woman in public even if it's in like say like a dance club dance club they don't exist anymore um uh a bar or something like that where even even if it is expected the thought of making them uncomfortable is enough to make me not do it unfortunately men have established a a stereotype a, a a precedent for being predatory and if I can be one guy that's not going to be predatory, that's fine. If that means I'm going to be single, I will accept that. So am I, every relationship I have been in, in my entire life, the woman has approached me. The woman has very clearly expressed an interest. And I'm like, great. And I went with that. In breaking that down, you know, or looking back at it, it basically meant I would try to make a relationship with 
anybody who was interested, obviously, whether I was compatible with them or not. Mm-hmm. I would do everything I could to make that work. As opposed to seeing somebody that I thought I would be compatible with and approaching them and trying to start a conversation. I wouldn't even know how to, how, how to go about doing that. So, so, so I guess every relationship started on a bad foot right there because, and, you know, it, it's nice to be wanted. It's nice to be approached, to, to be the one that, you know, someone's interested in. Yeah, it's flattering. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you want to, you wanna, like, I guess, meet their needs and, and, and conform to that. And, and because I, it, to say I can't do it, I can't find somebody on my own, I need someone to find me, you're going to hold, I'm going to hold on to a relationship for as long as I can. You know, and try to make it work for as long as I can. So it might end up being a toxic relationship. Um, it might be. Yeah. Um, it might just be we just don't work. Right. And I, I, I have always wished in in those relationships that if we and and more as you get older and 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 you learn things. It's it's okay if a relationship doesn't work. We can still be friends. We can still get along. Our relationship just didn't work. Mm-hmm. But it's never gone that far. Mm-hmm. It's, it's never worked like that. It makes me feel bad knowing that... Obviously, everybody has kind of a, you know, a set of traits that they're attracted to and things that they want in a partner. And the fact that you actually can't go out and pursue that... It kind of breaks my heart a little bit. <laughs> like, I mean, you deserve to go after what you want just as much as anyone else does, but your, you know, the issues that you have are preventing you to do that. I wonder if there's any kind of therapy or any kind of coping that could help you get to a point where you might start being comfortable with that. Comfortable approaching? Right. No, I don't know. You you said the word petrified, which it is petrified. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So a relationship I had in the past, it, it, it wasn't one of the worst relationships. This was, um, I, this is something we haven't brought up, but I, I consider myself asexual. I do not have a very high sex drive. It's not an important thing for me. And I think this was probably in my early 30s that I, or uh, yeah, that this, that we had this relationship. We'll call her Mary. Again, Mary approached me. You know, we, uh, I think she dated a friend of mine and, you know, we had hung out a few times and she was interested and I said, we got to talk to the friend, make sure he's cool with it. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, we started exploring a relationship. And, um, so, you know, I had starting to understand, I, I, I had at that point, this was even before I knew asexual was a thing. I had, I had used the term I'm borderline asexual or I had just have a low libido. That was the, the words I would throw around at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I had talked to her. You know, we had talked about that. And she was okay with that. And um, she was bisexual. And she had said that, you know, she kind of missed being with women. And so we had an open relationship. And which, which worked out well for me. Because the pressure of not being the sole sexual provider was good for me. So, so we were out at a bar one time. And... Uh, and she saw a girl she liked, and she wanted to go flirt with her. And I was like, "Yeah, go flirt with her, right?" And um, 
and and I, it, that didn't go well. But she was like, "Oh, what if we play a game where we can see who can get the most phone numbers tonight, right?" And uh, you know, like go approach people and get phone numbers. And I was like, "Yeah, let's try that because this was like you know, again, this was this was where I was like starting to kind of understand myself." That sounds like your nightmare. Well, hold on, it became my nightmare. <laughs> okay, this is because because now there's no pressure. There's no pressure of rejection because up to this point. I was thinking the reason I didn't want to approach girls was because I was afraid of being rejected, which is a common thing. And so I was like, well, there's no pressure here, right? This is, this is the moment I realized where that fear came from was I thought up to that point, I thought I was just having a fear of rejection. I got no fear now, right? No fear of rejection, right? So there should be no problem at all for me to approach some girls and try to chit chat them up. And I can remember going to the bathroom coming and, and, and coming back and there was two girls sitting together and I was like, oh, I'm going to go up and talk to them. And it just hit me. If I go up and talk to these girls, I'm very clearly going to like seem like I'm a predator. I'm going to seem like I'm trying to get their number. I'm trying to chat them up. That was the first time that I recognized my fear that, that petrifying fear as not a fear of rejection, but a fear of actually upsetting those two girls, mm-hmm. of actually making their night uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and from that point on, it, it re- I really started to understand why I couldn't approach girls. It wasn't because I was afraid of, making, of being rejected or, or, or they might not like me or whatever. I didn't want to hurt them. And, and that, that, that has stuck with me ever since Mm -hmm. that, that thought of like, and, and like, I, I find it now, like I I like to go out, I enjoy the bar scene and, um, there's been a number of times in the last few years I'll be out and, um, I've been told I'm an attractive person (laughs) and, uh, like you, 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 you are, are you are <laughs> Thank no, you. you looked at us and we're like oh, we I, I know <laughs> but um um like i'll go out and and i'll see a girl catch my eye she'll smile and and i'll go about my night watching tv or looking around and she'll catch her eye again she'll smile again whatever and i think she might be interested but maybe she's just being polite maybe you know what? That's what you do. You know, you're just like, mm, you smile and you're like, hey, we made eye contact accidentally. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to take that chance. Well, it, the way you describe it, sometimes it sounds like you're hypersensitive to other people's body language, facial expressions. But when you read about some of the characteristics of, of autism, uh, some folks have a hard time reading those nonverbal cues. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think you have a hard time accurately interpreting somebody's nonverbal communication? That's a good question. I, I've heard that too, uh, for the people on the uh, on the spectrum, and um, I think I, I I just recently saw something online uh, talking about that about people on the spectrum and and reading social cues. And I think that they they put it really well which was we don't have a problem reading your reading I say your social cues. I'm not saying you guys one's are social cues. One yeah. social cues. We don't have a problem reading those. The problem is 
you don't understand, they don't understand that we see your social cues better than you do. Mm. You expect us to, to respond in a way that you think you're projecting. We are responding in the way that you are actually projecting. Mm. And, <laughs> and they don't like that because we kind of called them out on it. And they say, you didn't read my social cue right. It's like, oh, no, no, no. We did. We read you better than you thought. So when you say, you know, people on the spectrum have trouble reading social cues, I think that's based on the observer. <laughs> because I, I think maybe they're better at it than you think. They're just not responding the way society thinks they should respond to that cue. I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's the first time I heard that. And it's, it's so very true because I, you know, when I, I've told, you know, people close to me like, ah, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm on the spectrum. And they're like, oh, but you make eye contact and, and you da, 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 da. I'm like, um, you don't understand. Like, I can remember when I was struggling with like, am I autistic? You know, you hear the, the, the eye contact thing all the time. And, um, even, you know, and I was like, no, I'm really good at eye contact. I, I know just how long to hold eye contact before you look away. I've done all the calculations. I've done all the calculations. <laughs> and, and, you know, and if you have trouble knowing which eye to focus on, that's really easy. You just look at the bridge. You look at the space in between their eyes. And then it looks like you're looking at both eyes at the same time. And as I was going through this in my mind, I was like, yeah, a normal person doesn't put that much thought into eye contact. I'm guess I do have a problem with eye contact. During those downtime, like the, these couple of weeks where you weren't, uh, I don't want to say up to the task, but you were feeling evasive to the mm -hmm. problems you were going through. Do you have self-loathing during those periods? Mm -hmm. or Absolutely not. That is something I had to get over. Mm. So I think I mentioned earlier about going into man anger management. And I think that is, a, um, a, is definitely a misnomer. And that's something we talked about in quote unquote anger management. It was uh, group therapy for abusive behavior. That was exactly what it was. So we had a, a, a module or a day or whatever you want to call it, where we talked about um, negative self-talk and positive self-talk was something that was, was well not talked about. Uh, but we were talking about negative self-talk and very specifically about the word should that should is a bad word. And that really stuck with me, which was anytime you use the word should, you should have known better. You should have done this. You sh should have done that. There are better ways to say that, you know, anytime you use the word should, it, you know, you could say, it might have been more effective if you did this. So you're communicating the same thing without using the word should. Something about that makes it like when you say you should have known better, you're saying you are a bad person. You did something wrong. And so that's, that's very negative. So learning about should really took away the self-loathing thing. It was so impactful for me where you can own up to a lot of bad thoughts, bad behaviors, and, and understand why you had those thoughts, why you did those, those things that are not desirable, but doesn't make you a bad person. And 
I know a lot of people struggle with that. And I might have struggled with that in the past, but this was something I learned in my early 20s. And it really stuck with me. And I've been very fortunate to not have to really worry about the self-loathing. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I can work through a lot of my issues on my own. It's a huge victory. Yeah, and, and I think what you're talking about with the you know the nomenclature of the word should, it, and it sounds like a very, very early self-compassion work. I, I, it's, it's, it's little things like that that I've learned along the way that I think has helped me. That, I, I don't know, like a perfect storm of, of a lot of little tools that have been helpful. I mean, I, I've had to, I guess, come to terms with, I'm never going to be fixed. It's, this isn't about fixing who I am and being the perfect person. It's just about going from day to day and working through things. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have problems in the future. And I'll work through those problems again. Can you describe to somebody who doesn't have sensory overload, overstimulation, can you describe what that feels like to be so overwhelmed in a situation? Wow. Because like, like to, to answer that question, I have to think like a person that I have no idea mm. how they think. Mm-hmm. I don't know how a neurotypical person thinks. Is it you know, a physical sensation? Oh, absolutely. Well, there are physical sensation parts of it. Absolutely. Can you describe those aspects? Um, maybe. But I want to go back to something that, that popped in my head okay. when you said that, which was a joke by a comedian. And I wish I could reference the comedian so I can give them credit for it. But what they were saying was is that they, were, they had a fear of flying and that they, when they go on a plane, if the plane's going to crash, they want to find the person with anxiety. And that sounds stupid, except what they said was, he goes, on a normal level, my anxiety is way down here at the bottom. And their anxiety is up here on a regular basis. This plane's about to crash. My anxiety jumped all the way to the top. You know that person with anxiety? They're still right where they were. <laughs> they know what it's like. They know, yeah. And he goes, I want to find that person with anxiety because I'm going to be like, what? what? oh my God, the plane's about to crash. And they're like, yeah. It's going to crash. It's just a normal everyday plane crash. It's not like we're flying into the pit of hell. It's not like I'm sitting here next to my judgmental in-laws. It's just a normal plane crash. So so to, to, to answer your question, like how would you explain overstimulation to someone who doesn't know what it's like? Mm-hmm. Take yourself to the highest level that you can possibly think of. Mm -hmm. Like think of that time when something was a little uncomfortably loud. Think of that time when those lights were just a little too bright and then double it and triple it and, and then, and then hold it there. So, and then, and then you asked another question before I thought of the answer of the first question. I have read like, there are certain people who think that autism is the next evolutionary stage in being a human. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that, but I have thoughts on something similar to that. Okay. Can we hear them? Yeah. I don't think autism is a disorder. I don't think it is only a disability in that society has not been built to accommodate it. Just like if, if, all, of, if, if, if all human beings didn't have legs, we would build society to accommodate people without legs. The fact is most people have legs. So we build society with 
sidewalks and, and steps and stairs and things like that. So someone without legs, sure, that is a disability in society. I don't think autism is a disability. I think it is a just a different way people's minds work. Um, there is plenty of recorded evidence of of scientists and, and, and people in the past that have exhibited symptoms of autism. I think it's just a different way of thinking. They've been we've been labeled weird, outcasts, eccentrics throughout recorded history. We've always existed. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's an evolution. I think it's always been there. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't I, I I don't think a world of all autistics would be ideal, but I, I think there's there's value there to 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 people, you know, like us. Um, I, I I thought this before that it was uh, uh, like I think about I think about uh, the managers I've had in the different jobs. Definitely neurotypical people. And I think, uh, so it made me think that neurotypical people run the world, but autistic people keep it running. Mm-hmm. We're the ones that know how things should work. We're going to do our job. We're going to do the job to the best of our abilities to keep things going. But, you know, but we're not ever going to be the ones in charge. Mm. So like, I think, I, I don't think it's an evolution. I don't think it's a, it's a disorder or a disability. I think it's, it's just a different way. It's just a different type of mental formulation. It's a different, it's a different type of person. And I think it needs to be more accommodated and less stigmatized. I don't, uh, I, I don't know how much content we have on here. I know we went all over the place. A lot. It was a lot of fun. So I don't know if, if you want to split this up into a future episode. I could record a, I would be happy to come back for another episode sometime. And, oh, thanks for having me back. <laughs> and then, so now, you, now, look, you've got that on tape right now. You yeah, yeah, cut- yeah, we can use that. You know, so, so Marty says that autism's been around forever mm-hmm. and it's hypothesized that there's evidence that Thomas Jefferson had autism mm-hmm. and many others uh, Emily Dickinson Charles Darwin Albert Einstein and of course they weren't diagnosed in that time because like like we say it wasn't around until 1980 yeah as, as far as whether individuals with autism can eventually rule the world uh i think that bill gates and elon musk are evidence of that and so we really want to thank marty for doing this and who knows marty could be running the world someday and you know what i would be on board with that yeah thank you marty for for letting us peer into your world a little bit If you would like more information or resources on autism, please contact your healthcare provider, your local health department, or search Autism Speaks at www.autismspeaks.org. I'm Matt Russell. I made the music for the episode. I'm also host and producer. And I'm Verna Mullins, the other host and producer. Chris Pfeiffer is the executive producer of the Mental Gains podcast. And hit us up at wgte.org slash mental gains. Drop us a comment. Say hey. Uh, if you have any requests for future episodes or guests, let us know. Reach out. Bye. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.